interest of truthfulness, I, I motored in from Dubuque. <laughs> I was in Mason City yesterday, but last night, every Friday during the summer, uh, in Waverly, we have a gathering of our seminarians. We gather for mass and a meal and a class and just togetherness. And so after that, I motored to Dubuque. You'll find out when you get old that it's nice to sleep in your own bed once in a while. And very happy to be here and thank you for the invitation. And um, I saw the, the flyer and the, the titles for my presentations and, you know, any speaker can stretch it in order to fit, but I've gotten this thing from Pete that um, asking me to give some presentations on people evangelizing and then what is witness and that's what I plan to do. It'll fit with what's listed on the... <laughs> some of you may have uh, heard a presentation in the past when I said that for many years, 12 years to be exact, I lived in Rome. Um, part of those years studying and part of those years working in the Vatican. But all those years, I served the missionaries of charity in one capacity or another. Uh, the missionaries of charity or the religious community started by soon to be uh, St. Teresa of Calcutta. And I don't even remember when it was, but I think I was serving pasta or, or something to a group of homeless men. And uh, one of them said to me, you know, saw that I was a priest and said to me in Italian, you know, so good news. What is this good news? You're always talking about good news. We hear good news from the sisters. What is this good news? And I just chuckled and went on my merry way, you know, serving pasta to other people. Uh, partly because he was not in the proper state, being in the state of inebriation to receive <laughs> the good news. But also, and mostly, because I wasn't sure what to say. You know, I, I think that this Maybe I'm the exception and not the rule, but I think that this sometimes happens where, you know, we use words and phrases and we talk about things like good news, but we might be hard-pressed to say, well, what is the good news? And this is pretty important for us who identify ourselves as followers of Jesus the Word made flesh who came to give us the word of the good news. So I decided I better inform myself so as to be able to answer this or to evangelize more you know, forcefully, if you will. So I, I went to the scriptures and I thought that probably the best place to, to find it was in the Acts of the Apostles, specifically chapter 2, Peter's first sermon. His spirit 
filled sermon. So, inspired by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which marked the beginning of the mission of the church, the evangelizing mission of the church, Peter stepped out of that upper room and began to address the, the people assembled outside. People who were there, what's going on in that upper room? What's all this noise about? Are they drunk? You know, it's nine o'clock in the morning. Peter stood up, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, You who are Israelites, hear these words. Jesus the Nazarene was a man commended to you by God with mighty deeds, wonders, and signs, which God worked through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This man, delivered up by the set plan and foreknowledge of God, you killed, using lawless men to crucify him. But God raised him up, releasing him from the throes of death, because it was impossible for him to be held by it. One can confidently say to you about the patriarch David that he died and was buried, and his tomb is in our midst to this day. Aside, if you go to Jerusalem, and you go to the upper room, right below the upper room is a synagogue, where the patriarch David is buried. So when Peter uttered these words, he was standing in a space above where the patriarch David was buried. But since he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that neither was he abandoned to the netherworld, nor did his flesh see corruption. God raised this Jesus. Of this we are all witnesses. Exalted at the right hand of God, he received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father and poured it forth, as you see and hear. Therefore let the whole house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they asked Peter and the other apostles, What are we to do? Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is made to you and to your children and to all those far off, whomever the Lord our God will call. He testified with many other arguments and was exhorting them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 persons were added that day. I don't know, you know, nowadays, I don't know where this comes from, but people have this notion that a sermon should last no more than seven minutes. 
I don't know about other preachers, but I am challenged uh, not to reach seven minutes, but to uh, stay within those limits. So, a relatively short sermon, probably seven minutes long, with tremendous effect. The good news is outlined right there. But you know, I sometimes have trouble remembering. Um, I have Alzheimer's, and so I, <laughs> some things I can remember well enough, but others not. And so I thought I need something to help me to recall this. And so reflecting upon that need and upon this message, I remembered how Mother Teresa, in instructing her sisters, especially the, the new entrants, would teach them the gospel of the hand. Anybody hear of that before? The gospel of the hand. Um, she wanted them to carry with them a reminder of, of what was the, the principal driver, especially of their ministry to the poorest of the poor. So drawing upon that story told by Jesus in Matthew's Gospel, Matthew 25, you know, sheep and goats, and you go to heaven, and you go to hell, and you go to heaven because I was hungry, and you fed me, and you go to hell because I was hungry, and you just walk right by. For whenever you do it to one of these least ones, you did it to me. The gospel of the hand. You did it to me. I thought, good teacher. No, taking an important message, boiling it down to, to a, a very memorable line, and even then providing a way that this could be remembered. You did it to me. So with the very hand that they might use to to give food to the hungry or drink to the thirsty. That hand served as a reminder. So I thought, that would be great. So I then labored to translate this message of the good news into the hand. The gospel of the hand. And I don't take any credit for this. This, I think, is the Holy Spirit, and I'll give it to Mother Teresa of Calcutta as well for, for coming up with the, the notion, the idea. But I think that the message of the good news can be summarized and serve as a reminder by referring to looking to the fingers on your hand. Start with your pinky. The smallest, weakest of all the fingers on our hand. And for the most part, it's useless. I mean, what do you do with your pinky? <laughs> if you're in England, which is soon now not to be part of the European Union, if you're in England and you're having tea with the Queen, you might extend it. And somebody once told me when I was talking about this, somebody came up afterwards, well, you know, 
If you have a, a handful of peanuts, you know, and you're eating them on the go, if you didn't have your pinky, they would just fall right through. But... <laughs> all right, all right. So it does have some use, but it's the smallest, the weakest, and for the most part, the useless finger on our hands. And it represents all of us. It represents the poor to whom Jesus preached the good news. Remember, in the gospel, the, the signs and the wonders worked by Jesus, and then later by his disciples. Those signs and wonders for, for those who were familiar with the prophecy of old, those signs and wonders were clear indicators of the onset of messianic times. The time of fulfillment is now. And among those signs, and really the sign that was significant enough to convince John the Baptist, so John the Baptist in prison sent his followers to, to Jesus with the question, are you the one? Are you the one or do we look for another? And Jesus said, tell him this, the, good, the, the poor have the good news preached to them. This is not those who are materially poor. I, oh, it might include them, but not necessarily. It's possible that those who are materially poor are not counted among what is referred to in the scriptures as the poor, God's poor, um, Hebrew anawim, those who recognize their utter dependence upon God. The pinky, small, weak, useless, represents us, the, the poor, God's poor. The ones who know of our inability. We are too small, too weak. We, our efforts are useless to pay the debt to our sins. I need a savior. The pinky, I am in need. Next, the ring finger, the one on which spouses normally, I, I know it's not every spouse wears a wedding ring and, and it's not you know, necessary uh, to, to be married, to have a ring on your finger, but most spouses wear a ring that represents their union to become one. That finger, your ring finger, can then represent the wedding of divinity with humanity in the person of Jesus. The same wedding or union of divinity and humanity that is promised is the inheritance of all of those who are brothers and sisters of Christ, children of God, heirs with Christ. 
for our salvation, moved only by love, because there's nothing about the, the poor, the weak, the useless. There's nothing about, oh, aren't they sweet? Let me go and take on human flesh for them and have that flesh nailed to the cross and, and offer my life in payment for the offense that they did against, against me. Nothing that God owes, nothing that we deserve, but moved only by love. The eternal Son of God became incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. This is the message that was proclaimed by the angels to the shepherds at Jesus' birth. True, you could never deliver yourselves from death, from sin, but never fear. For I proclaim to you good news. The ancient prophecy is fulfilled. In the city of David, a Savior is born for you, who is Messiah and Lord. He did this, took on flesh, just to have a body in which to suffer and die for our sins, to show us in the flesh how far God's love for us would take him. The ring finger, the, the incarnation of Christ, God becoming man in order to save us from our sins. Then your middle finger, which I imagine for most, if not all of us, rises higher than all the others. If yours doesn't, just take mine as an example. <clears throat> rises higher than all the others and represents Jesus being raised high on the cross, giving himself up for us by laying down his life for us, thereby canceling the debt of sin. Jesus being raised up on the cross. But, but we know this, this is part of the good news, <clears throat> that if Jesus was only raised up on the cross, if Jesus did not also raise up rise up from the dead, then as St. Paul says, then we are still in our sins and our faith is in vain. So it represents not only Jesus being raised up on the cross to pay the debt for our sins, but also being raised from the dead, conquering sin and death and opening the gates of heaven for us. With, with this middle finger and what it represents, being raised on the cross, being raised from the dead, even more ancient prophecies are fulfilled that the Messiah must suffer. Remember Jesus, the risen Lord, walking with the downcast disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were walking away from Jerusalem. They, they, they heard the news of his resurrection, but it, it just didn't, didn't pierce their, 
dull minds or their hard hearts. So they were walking away downcast. And Jesus came and walked with them and opened up the scriptures for them and showed them, told them, explained to them how the prophecy said that the Messiah must suffer and die. Which is why when he was nailed to the cross, <clears throat> excuse me, on Good Friday, you know, in the crowd below, save yourself, save you. No. No, it's for this that I came. Not save myself, but lay down my life to save you. The Messiah must suffer. And as we heard in this this Pentecost preaching that a descendant of David will sit upon the throne. That a descendant of David will not undergo corruption of the grave. Thereby making it even clearer, if it needs to be made clearer, that Jesus is the promised Messiah and Lord. Your index finger. A lot of different uses. This is the one I would uh, point to. Your index finger used to, to summon people. You know, come here. I, I noted, you know, I, as I said, I lived in Rome for 12 years and I drove a car there. It's one of the things I, I miss. It was, uh, it's like a carnival ride every day, you know. <clears throat> And your know, traffic is crazy, and they have traffic cops, and you think, what is, you know, what is that traffic cop really going to accomplish? But you know, you'd be heading towards maybe some road that's blocked off, and the cop would be standing there in a, you know, a, a, a designer police uniform because no self-respecting Italian would, you know, go out there with some just. So any old uniform, it, it's got to have a, a, a label name on it. And, and he stands there and he goes. <laughs> and, and it's enough to stop traffic. And, and I had experience either with my parents or, or, or my teachers. <laughs> the index finger is sometimes used to summon people. To, to bring them forward, representing the invitation that is always issued when the good news is proclaimed. To hear the proclamation, and as we heard in this Peter's Pentecost sermon, to hear and to respond. No one can remain neutral to this invitation. You either respond to it or not. You can't remain neutral. Now the response can be gradual. I, I can't remember exactly where it was when Paul, I think maybe it was Athens, it was somewhere in Greece, where he was preaching, you know, at this uh, temple dedicated to the unknown God and, and was preaching the good news and inviting them to respond. And they said, oh, well, this is very interesting. <clears throat> we will hear you about this another day. <laughs> they didn't reject it. We'll, we'll, we'll come back and 
Here's some more about it. And this is an invitation that has consequences. I mean, we don't like to say that there are consequences if you refuse to, to receive or to accept the invitation of Jesus, but I'm not making it up. Uh, you know, it's not my notion that there are consequences. This is, this is part of the good news. Jesus will come at the end of time as judge of the living and the dead. And those who do not receive and live the good news will be, may be, can be, I, you know, who am I to judge? That's Jesus. May be found worthy of condemnation. And those who accept Jesus as Messiah and Lord will have the forgiveness of their sins and receive the inheritance promised. Finally, your thumb. Taking this opportunity then to glance at my watch. <laughs> We're in a baseball season, right? And uh, I guess when the Cubs were playing against the Cardinals, they saw an awful lot of this. You're out of there! Yeah. At least in this most recent series. Get out of there. It was the last thing that Peter said. Get out of there. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation, which doesn't mean run to the hills, you know, go away from Cedar Rapids and live, I don't know where, uh, Coralville, yeah, there you go. <laughs> it doesn't mean that we have to physically absent ourselves or distance ourselves. In fact, uh, there is a a second century document called the Letter to Diognetus. I, I should have made a, a copy and brought it with, with me here today. Uh, but it's, the author is not known, but writing to a, a group of Christians who are living in the world, but not of the world. And speaks very, or writes very eloquently about we, followers of Jesus, well, we don't speak a, a different language because we're followers of Jesus or, or dress in a way that distinguishes us from others because we're followers of Jesus. We live in the midst of others, you know, part of, of a community, wishing that community well, but we don't live of the world. And this author goes on then to, to make some contrasts. Um, the one that sticks to mind, you know, is that, you know, we share our table with others, but we do not share our spouses. Um, something, evidently, where, wherever this community was that he was writing to, this was something that was commonplace. No, we don't do that. Get out of there. Repent. Be baptized. Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. We still live in the world, <clears throat> excuse me, but hopefully not of the world. Not yielding 
to cravings of the flesh or enticements of the eye or living a life of empty show. Things, three things St. John in one of his epistles lists. lists. This, this we do not do. We don't set our heart on a life of empty show or, or enticements of the eye or, or uh, cravings of the flesh. Not dividing our hearts between love of God and love of anything else. So, in a nutshell, if we admit our need for God and believe that Jesus is God, the Word made flesh, who suffered punishment our sins deserved, and who rose from the, get, the grave, then good news. Our faith and our way of life that proves that this is saving faith will lead us to the fullness of happiness and peace that is life in heaven. So I, I like to refer to this as pinky power. Knowing that the power of salvation, the good news, begins with the acknowledgement, I need. On my own, I cannot do this. I cannot pay the debt. I don't care how many prayers we say. How many commandments we observe perfectly. How many Fridays we eat fish sticks. And, and you can go on and on. There is nothing that we can do to make ourselves righteous right before God. Nothing that we can do to justify ourselves. We do all these things, all those fish sticks, not in order that we might be saved, but because we are saved. The way of life of a Christian is lived because we are saved, because we are promised heaven. <laughs> the other day uh, at our priest convocation, the priests were talking and, and they, I don't know, you know, priests, you might all talk about baseball, and, but they talk about funerals and, you know, obituaries and it's called the Irish sports page, by the way, you know, the obituary page. Yeah. <laughs> You know, and, and so they were, they were mentioning somebody's sermon about somebody who had died, and the, the sermon mentioning that, that that somebody was in heaven. They were, oh, they canonized the person, you know. Don't misunderstand. Canonization, saying Mother Teresa is, you know, is a canonized saint. It's not saying, well, she's in heaven. We're not sure about others. But this is the promise that Jesus gives us. This is, this is an essential part of our faith. You receive Holy Communion. If you stay for the 4 o'clock Mass today and you receive Holy Communion, our church teaches that that gift, that Eucharist, is a pledge of eternal life, a promise, an IOU. Here, keep this chip. Well, don't keep it. You're supposed to, you know, 
consume it. But here, this is a pledge to you. When you die, you will go to heaven. If you remain part of the body of Christ, how would it be? Let's say I'm outside. And I stick my head in and somebody says, Oh, hey, look, there's Archbishop Jacobs. And my head comes in, but the rest of my body stays out there. That'd be pretty odd, wouldn't it? But no, the rest of the body follows. And this is our belief. St. Paul spends a lot of time talking about the body of Christ. By our faith and baptism, we are made members of the body of Christ, the church. And who is the head of our body but Christ? On the Feast of the Ascension, our, say, our prayers say, where the head has gone, what? The body is sure to follow. It would be weird if it didn't happen that way. <laughs> our responsibility is to make sure that we are part of the body of Christ. Which doesn't mean that, oh, well, I'm, I'm lost, you know, because I, I know of my sins. Jesus does too, but you know, if we have the humility to acknowledge, I, I'm a sinner, I need to be washed clean in the, in the sacrament of, of confession, if we remain part of the body of Christ, trying to be holy, holy, which is not necessarily you know, saying prayers and spending long hours in church in prayer, but holiness, we understand holiness as the imitation of Christ. Thankfully, not that I have to wear long hair like we think Christ did. I think he was bald, but... but <laughs> no, it's not a physical imitation, but, but a, a spiritual one. To imitate the mind and the heart of Christ. To imitate the humility and the charity of Christ. To imitate the forgiveness and the service of Christ. And by so doing, I remain part of the body of Christ. I have need of a Savior. And God, in response to this need out of love, wed divinity with humanity in the person of Jesus, who took on flesh for the sake of being... Um, I don't want to hold up that middle finger all by itself because you might misunderstand, but who, who took on flesh, flesh in order that his body might be raised up on the cross in order to, to cancel the debt of sin and raised up from the grave to open the gates of heaven and to make it home for us. No, nobody is forced to believe. God is very polite. I'm not going to come into your life if you don't want me. But here's the invitation. To come and believe. To repent. Be baptized. Live life in Christ. Getting out of the world even though we live in it. I don't want to take away everything from my next presentation, but 
just talking with uh, our seminarians last night. Uh, we were talking about the Gospel of Mark and, and how Jesus in Mark's Gospel is, is like the, the lion is usually used to depict Mark and the Gospel of Mark because Jesus is like a lion in, in so many ways, but, but also in this way. Lion King, right? Uh, king of the jungle, the, the Lord of beasts. Jesus is Lord, Jesus is King. But in the kingdom of God, to rule is to serve. It's, it's upside down in comparison to the world. All the, the values, all the practices in the kingdom of God are upside down in relation to the world. If you want to have, you must give. If you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to be exalted, you must be humbled. If you want to live, you must die. If you want to reign, R-E-I-G-N, you must serve. So I like to teach people that in order to live in the kingdom, you have to learn how to walk on your hands or stand on your head. Because that is the proper perspective for us to look at the world in which we live. We live in it as if upside down. Not first, but last. Not to, to receive, but to give. Not to live, but to die. To live for others. To be humbled instead of exalted. To get out of there and enter into the kingdom. So I'll stop there uh, and we'll have a break. I'm sorry if I went longer than I was supposed to. It won't happen again. <laughs> Thank you for your attention.